Well, today, uh, being the first Sunday in Lent, we are starting a new series, uh, and we're looking at the Ten Commandments. As you know, Ten Commandments are one of the most famous parts of the Bible, uh, and over this Lenten period, we'll be looking at the first five uh, of those commandments. Uh, we will see how they apply to Israel under the Old Covenant, uh, and of course, then we'll seek to see how they apply to us uh, in light of the coming of Christ. Uh, uh, as we do so, uh, today's passage, normally, you know, we uh, I just preached from one passage. Uh, today we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages. So I've given you uh, all the passages in your outline uh, so that you can see, uh, doing the references in your outline uh, so that you can uh, have a look at that. And particularly when you go home, uh, you can look up the references because I'll be working through them uh, pretty fast. Uh, let me lead us in prayer uh, as we begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us by your spirit through your word. Uh, we ask that your spirit uh, work among us uh, this morning. Uh, we pray that he will open our eyes uh, to the wonderful things in your word uh, and that he will enable us to have hearts that love and obey Jesus. Uh, so we commit this time to you, uh, asking you for your work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. God first gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel when they were at a place called Mount Sinai. 400 years before that, God had promised their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would bless the, their descendants, uh, he would give them many descendants, he would bless those descendants, and he would give them the promised land. But up to recently, these descendants, these Israelites, had been slaves in Egypt. And just a few months before uh, the giving of these Ten Commandments, God rescued them from slavery in Egypt in amazing ways bringing judgment upon the Egyptians and salvation for his people. He brought them through the Red Sea. He sustained them through the desert and brought them to a place called Mount Sinai. And there God spoke to them. We've, we, we read about that in our Old Testament reading today. Exodus 20 verses 1 to 17 is what we know as the Ten Commandments. Now, they're, they're called words there rather than commandments, but it's okay for us to call them commandments because uh, that's how the Scripture often uh, describes them elsewhere. And if you keep on looking in Exodus, after the Ten Commandments, come three more chapters of various laws that we call the Covenant Code. And they were given to Israel to show them how to apply those Ten Commandments in their situation. Uh, and so, as you look at the context, you see really, these ten words are part of the Old Covenant. They are part of God's agreement, His treaty, His expressed will for His people Israel. And before we dive headlong into them, we have to think, well, what are the principles involved about how they might apply to us? Because they're not directly speaking to us. Right? The old covenant has been fulfilled by Christ. We're not part of the old covenant. Uh, this, is the, this is the law of Moses. Remember we saw in Galatians last year, we are not under the law. But we are part of the new covenant. And we may not be under the law, that is the law of Moses, but we are not lawless. Right, we are under what Paul metaphorically calls the law of Christ. Jesus is our Lord. He rules us by his spirit through his word. And what we have here is still part of scripture, that very word. All scripture, Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, including the Old Testament, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we ought be useful, equipped for every good work. For the law of Moses reflects the character of God applied to God's people Israel under the Old Covenant. It shows the people of Israel what it means to love God and to love their neighbor in that context. 
The New Testament, the New Covenant documents, which we, the covenant which we are part of, shows how the same law of love applies in light of the coming of Christ. And so as we read the Old Covenant, uh, we need to apply it, not directly as if we were Israelites, but in light of its fulfillment in, in Christ. And the New Testament guides us as to how to do that. We're not under the Lord's law, but it's still God's word for us to be read, honored, and obeyed in light of Jesus Christ and the changes that he brings. Most of these Ten Commandments, including this first one, are repeated and in fact magnified in the New Testament. And so we must obey them. One of them is transformed to a different level. And so for obedience for us will look very different than the obedience for Israel. And we'll see that later on in our series. But before God gave Israel the law, he reminded them of his grace. In Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2, God spoke all these words saying, and here, before he gives the commandments, here's what he says, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God rescued them first before giving them the law. He didn't say, here's the law, and if you keep it, I'll rescue you from Egypt. No, 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 no. He saved them from slavery in order to be their God. He established a God-people relationship with them. And since he has rescued them and he is their God, he tells them how to serve him as his people. And that's the same for us in the new covenant, isn't it? God saved us first, and then he tells us how to live for Jesus. He doesn't say, do this, 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 and if you succeed, you'll be saved. No, 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 no. He saved us by his grace. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He saved us through faith in Jesus who died for us on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. He saved us and now we are his. He is our God. We are his people. And having saved us, he tells us how to live, how to be his people, just like he did for Israel. And when Israel was saved, the very first thing God told them in verse 3 was that they should have no other gods before him. No other gods in his face. Israel lived in a context where people worshipped many gods. Could the Lord just be another one? Could they just add him to other gods? Or could they add other gods in as well? To, to? Answers, no. If Yahweh, if the Lord is your God, then he is God exclusively. That's the deal. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt. He's the one who rescued them. He's their only savior. He was to be their only God. And you see this fleshed out uh, further in the next part of the law, the, the covenant code I mentioned just now. And so in chapter 20, verse 23, God says, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gods of gold. In chapter 20, verse 22, verse 20, God says, Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. That is thoroughly destroyed. In 23, 19, God says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Probably referring to pagan practices in the worship of their gods. And God warns them in 23, 24, Not to bow down to the gods of the nations which live in the land where they are, or to serve them, but to utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. He tells them in 23, verse 32 to 33, not to make a covenant with the people of the land because they would influence Israel to sin by serving their gods, which would be a snare to them. 
All this is because they are to worship Yahweh alone. One generation later, as Moses reiterates the law in the book of Deuteronomy to the next generation of people about to go in the promised land, he'll repeat those Ten Commandments in chapter 5. And when he comes to expand on it, he'll put it this way in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Israel is to have one God and only one. Their loyalties must not be divided. They're not to give themselves 50% to Yahweh, to the Lord, 25% to Molech, another 10% to Baal, another... No, 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 no. They would have loved the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might. And they would have showed that love by obeying his word and transmitting it to the next generation. So Moses continues, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Israel was to be faithful to their one God and to show their love for him by obeying his commandments from generation to generation. Well, how did Israel go in keeping this commandment? You know, even before Moses gave that speech to the next generation, reiterating the law, Israel had already started to break it. Uh, in Numbers 25 verse 1, it says, The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Uh, these invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. They've just come out of wandering in the desert 40 years and already they're doing this, even before they get to the promised land. Later on, after God brought his people to the promised land, we read in Judges chapter 2, that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. The end of verse 12, they, they went after foreign gods. They provoked the Lord to anger. So God gave them over to their enemies, as he warned that he would. But when they cried out to him for help, he had pity on them. He sent them judges to save them. And whenever the judge died, what they do? They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And so the cycle just continued round and round and round in the book of Judges. Eventually God gave them David, the king after his own heart. David sinned in other ways, but not in this one. He was loyal to God with his, all his heart. And the Future generations would look back at that and remember it. But his son Solomon didn't really, well, didn't wholly follow God the way David did. And in his old age, we are told in 1 Kings 11.5, he went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. He did what was evil in God's sight. And so when he died, God divided his kingdom. The northern kingdom called Israel, lasted less than 300 years before God sent them into exile, as he warned that he would do. Because they broke the first commandment, and the second, in fact. 1 Kings 17, 7-8 tells, tells us how they broke the first commandment. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh the king, and had feared other gods, and walked in the custom of the nations. 
Likewise, in the southern kingdom, kings like Manasseh encouraged the worship of all kinds of gods and introduced all kinds of foreign religious practices, even in God's temple. And there were some reformers like Josiah, but that's not enough to quench God's wrath against his people. Eventually, they too were taken into exile. But before the exile, God sent his prophets to both northern and southern kingdoms to call them to repentance. The prophet Hosea pictured Israel as a wife who was unfaithful to God, her husband. And yet one day, God promised through Hosea, beyond the exile, he would take her back and the names of the Baals would no longer be on her lips. The prophet Ezekiel spoke in chapter 16 in graphic terms about how God made a covenant with his people and the picture again was that of marriage. But they had prostituted themselves and committed adultery with other gods, the gods of the nations. And so judgment and shame will come upon them. And yet beyond that, he looks forward to a time when God atones for their sin and establishes an everlasting covenant with them. Israel failed to keep this first commandment again and again and again and again. And that was a terrible thing because they had a covenant with the God who saved them, with God their husband who wanted their exclusive love and loyalty. But they acted like an unfaithful spouse and went after other gods as well. When Jesus came, he came, among other things, as the true Israel. He always kept the law. As we prayed in our collect today, he was tempted as we are and yet without sin. Remember how Satan tempted him to take a shortcut to the kingdom? Was that shortcut? He can fulfill his destiny of ruling the world without going to the cross. Ah, so good. How? By bowing down and worshipping him. What did Jesus say? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus fulfilled the first commandment. He always kept that foot. He was always loyalty, loyal to his heavenly father. And yet he died on the cross under the judgment of God. And he died there bearing our sins to make atonement for his people and establish that new covenant that God had promised through the prophets. But what about us who are part of that new covenant? Well, friends, this first commandment applies to us just as much as it is applied to the people of Israel. There was one God and only one who saved them from Egypt. There is one God and only one who has saved us from sin and Satan and hell. Indeed, from the time of creation itself, there has only been one God to be worshipped. And that has never changed. What has changed is that we know the identity of this one God to include his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Whereas in the Old Testament, God says in Isaiah 45, I am God, there is none other. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. The New Testament tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so worshiping Jesus, God the Son, is part of this command of worshiping the one true God. And so in the book of Revelation, we see every creature in heaven and on earth, all the angels and all the creatures are saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The Son rightly shares in the worship that is due to God. And that is not only bowing before him in adoration and praise. Jesus said in Matthew 10, we read this a few weeks ago in our last series, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Worshipping Jesus also involves giving him the ultimate loyalty. For he deserves nothing less. But we are not to worship other gods. When the gospel came to the Thessalonians, they didn't just incorporate Jesus into their pantheon of gods. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 says that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And in chapter 10, he warns us that all the terrible things that happened to Israel, remember all the things we saw in Israel's history, that they were warnings for us. He says in verse 6 of chapter 10, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, he says, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Referring back to that incident we read about in Numbers earlier. And so he warns the Corinthians in chapter 10 verse 14, flee from idolatry. See, some of them have been participating in pagan rituals and sacrifices. And he says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. They are offered to demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we, he says, provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Friends, we cannot and must not do anything that would indicate participation in the worship of other gods. You cannot say, I was offering a sacrifice to this idol, but all the time I was thinking of Jesus, so it's okay. Any more than you can say, I was having a sex with this prostitute, but all the time I was thinking of my wife, so it's okay. It is not okay. And if you have done that, then God calls you to repentance. The Apostle John tells us at the end of his letter that Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. And he lovingly warns us, little children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. Friends, if we know Jesus and belong to him, we are to have no other gods. Jesus is our only savior. He is our only God. When I was in India, I often saw pictures of Jesus together with pictures of other deities. People added them to their list of gods. People added him to their list of gods. You can't do that with Jesus. Either he is Lord or he's not. If he is, then the very first thing he says is that he wants our complete loyalty. Do not think you can mix the Christian faith with any other religion. You can't. You have been bought with the blood of Christ. You belong to him, nobody else. No ancestor worship, no idol worship, no interfaith worship where the worship of God is mixed with the worship of other gods. No getting involved, no getting married in church today and getting married in the idol temple tomorrow. No, 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 no. Worship God and him only. And it's not just us as individuals. Brothers and sisters, remember we are the church. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus gave himself for us to wash us clean, to make us his own. The new covenant the prophets look forward to has been sealed in his blood. He loved us. He gave himself for us. He's preparing us for the day when he will present us to himself as his beautiful bride. You know, in the Old Testament, God's marriage to his people was, was a metaphor. But in the New Testament, actually we realize it's the reality for which marriage was created in the first place. We are the bride, betrothed to Christ, waiting for our wedding day. Let us not be unfaithful to him. Well, we have seen today that the primary way in which we obey this first commandment is, is to have nothing to do with the worship of other gods. It's not just the gods of other religions that are considered idols. In Philippians 3.19, Paul speaks about the enemies of the cross among the Philippians, and their God, he says, is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In other words, they live for the pleasures of this world. That is what they worship. And then in Colossians 3.5, Paul tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is, is wanting more and more things that other people have, irrespective of whether we, we need them or not. That, that is idolatry because a covetous person, the most important thing is getting more possessions. Paul warns us in Ephesians 5 verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. We'll talk about sexual immorality later on in this series. We'll talk about covetousness when we look at the 10th commandment, specifically about that. But friends, even note today, the New Testament links this first commandment with the 10th one, saying the covetous person is an idolater. Because when we are covetous or greedy, that is idolatry because the love of money or whatever it is that we covet takes over God's right to our love and trust and obedience, becomes the thing we worship. By extension, therefore, we can think of many things that could potentially become idols in our lives, not just money, power, pleasure, 
comfort, particular relationships, family, work, ministry, security. The list is endless. Now, it's a little bit different from the main application of this command because many of these things are not wrong in themselves. In fact, they might be really good things for which we are to thank God because he has blessed us with them. Religious idols are inherently wrong because in and of themselves they are rivals to the true God. But these things are only idols if they usurp God's place in our lives. So how do you know if something's an idol for you? Well, one question you might ask is, do I love this more or do I love Jesus more? How do you know? Remember how in Deuteronomy, Israel was to love God by obeying his commandments? Jesus said the same thing to us. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. So here's a question that you might ask to determine if something is an idol. Have I, or would I, be willing to sin in order to serve or please or keep that person or thing? Have I, or am I, willing to disobey God's commands in order to meet the demands of this person or thing? Because if that's what you do, or you're willing to do, then whatever that thing is, no matter how good it might be in and of itself, that thing is in danger of being an idol for you. Put it back in its place. God doesn't want 50% of our hearts and they distribute the rest among all the different people and roles and responsibilities. No, 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 no. no. Jesus wants our 100% loyalty. All these things might still be there, but they find their rightful place under him so that whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Spend a few moments in quiet reflection before God. Have there been times and places in our lives where we have compromised in our devotion to God alone? Have there been times when we have crossed the line from respecting people of all religions to participating in idolatry? Are there things in our lives which we love and cling to more than we love God? Things for which we've been willing to break God's commands for their sake.
If so, let's take a few moments to bring that before God in repentance. Let's remember that Jesus died for our sins, even that one, because he really does love us. And he really wants us to be exclusively his. Know that he loves us, died for us, to take away our sin. And just know the joy of sins forgiven. Are there things in our lives which are not idols, but we know could potentially become idols if we're not careful about them? Name them before God. They, they might seem very attractive, but just take a few moments to realize how empty they are compared with Jesus, what he's done for us, the future he has for us in glory. and ask God for wisdom in dealing with them carefully and rightly under him. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. Lord, have mercy upon us and write your law in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Amen.